Thank you, as always, to our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Welcome back for part two of Dopamine Nation. We're again joined by Dr. Anna Lemke. Anna, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It is so great to have you back. I really enjoyed part one. And we're going to launch into the what's actually going on inside the brain here as well. And I just tell you my little practice of wearing a pin. I was so happy to have a dopamine pin. So the symbol is here as well. So maybe we'll open up this one about explain what dopamine is. And then I loved your baseball pitcher model. Yeah. So dopamine is a a chemical that we make in our brain. It's a neurotransmitter. So neurotransmitters are the chemicals that bridge the gap between neurons. So neurons are these large spindly cells in our brain that create the electrical circuits that make our thoughts and emotions. But neurons actually don't touch end to end. There's a little gap between them called the synapse. And neurotransmitters like dopamine are the molecules that bridge that gap. And you might think of that like a the presynaptic neuron, you might think of as a pitcher who throws the ball, which is dopamine, uh, that binds to the postsynaptic neuron, which is like the catcher with the catcher's mitt. And that catcher's mitt is the receptor specifically designed to catch certain neurotransmitters and not others. So that's essentially um, you know, how neurotransmitters work. Other neurotransmitters are things like serotonin, norepinephrine. But again, they're, they're these molecules that allow for fine-tuned control of these electrical circuits. Dopamine is uh, the most important neurotransmitter for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in that process, but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. Dopamine is also very important to movement. So uh, for example, Parkinson's disease is characterized by a depletion of dopamine in a different part of the brain called the substantia nigra. And it's no accident that the same neurotransmitter that's involved in movement is also involved in pleasure, reward, and motivation because most living organisms have to locomote to uh, their food source uh, in order to get the pleasure of that food. So for example, even the most primitive nematode will uh, locomote in response to food in its environment. It does that by releasing dopamine. The problem is that today we don't have to get up off, we don't even have to get up off the couch you know, we swipe right or swipe left and uh, or scroll down, click a button, and we get what we need. And so that does complicate uh, the signals to our brain and complicate our relationship with our own dopamine. One of the things I found really interesting was, I loved, again, how you built this, I love how you went right back in the past, you went, okay, so tobacco, for example, it used to be like buy it in a pouch, and then you had to roll it, but then a rolling machine came in. And if you think of the progression of anything, any substance, it's way more accessible. Now, for example, marijuana or cannabis, you can buy it in vape form, it's even more addictive, perhaps in that form, but it's just that it's more accessible than ever before. And now you have medical marijuana as well, which some people will be able to bend the rules a little bit to get the access to. And this is all leading to proliferation, just like what happened to you, what happened, what we talked about in episode one, about access to your drug of choice. Right, exactly. So in 1880s, the cigarette rolling machine was invented, 
which allowed cigarette manufacturers to increase production from rolling four cigarettes a minute to rolling 20,000 cigarettes a minute. Today, the numbers are vastly higher. And it is that uh, increase in production, uh, the supply chain, the worldwide supply chain, uh, the increased potency. Uh, I love opioids as an example. So opium is the original opioid. You had to plant poppies, harvest them, get the sap, um, you know, process it. Now you can make fentanyl in a laboratory without any plant precursor. Fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than opium. And that's the trajectory of almost every drug uh, that you look at across the globe and across human history. They're more plentiful, they're more potent. Um, and of course, now we have drugs that didn't even exist before, right? We have video games, we have social media, we have online shopping, we have online pornography. Um, and, and the result is really that we've drugified pretty much every aspect of uh, our lives, making us all much more vulnerable to this problem of addiction. And yes, you alluded to my own uh, compulsive minor addiction. Essentially, I became addicted to fantasy romance novels. It started with the Twilight Saga, which was my gateway drug. Um, and then I got a Kindle and that made meant that I didn't have to go to the library anymore. I could just, you know, go on Amazon and, uh, you know, buy the next book. And so I became like a chain reader of romance novels. As soon as I finished one, I immediately bought another one. In fact, while I was finishing the first one, I was already jonesing for the next one, which really speaks to uh, what's happening in our brains with this pleasure pain balance, you know, as, as we're engaging in something that's intoxicating, um, and then I needed more potent forms over time to get the same effect. And I was reading erotica and then I was reading, you know, all hours of the day is day and night. And, and I, and again, I didn't really see what was happening while it was happening, which, which really speaks to the ways in which when we're chasing dopamine, it's very hard to see true cause and effect. There's a couple of terms you use there. So you, you said about chasing more and more to get the same effect. That's really important. That whole idea of neuroadaptation because this is why we need more and more to get the same buzz or the same hit of dopamine. But also then you talk, you mentioned the term the pleasure pain balance. And in episode one, I said, let's come back and think of a seesaw. For example, I thought about that the idea of balance. And I loved your your illustrations in the book as well. So we have the the pleasure aspect. But then we have the pain gremlins as well. And the pain gremlins over time, get larger and larger, the more we use whatever our drug, drug of choice is. I'd love you to unpack this. This is great imagery. And it really helped understand it for me for somebody who is not a, a neuroscientist, but is really interested in the field. Okay, well, the, I think one of the most exciting findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years or so is that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of a balance. When we experience pleasure, it tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the other. And there are three rules governing this balance. And the first rule is that the balance wants to remain level, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis, such that with any deviation from the neutral position, our brains will work very hard to get back to that neutral or balanced position. So for example, when we ingest an intoxicant, we get a release of dopamine, our balance tilts to the side of pleasure, but no sooner has that happened than it wants to restore a level balance. And the way that it does that, and this is really the key, first it tips an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain before going back to the level position. 
I like to imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins that hop on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance. So they stay on until they've tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And then they hop off and then it's a level balance. But that is key for appreciating that with every pleasure, we pay a price. The more intense the pleasure, the bigger the come down. And the come down is necessary to get back to that level position. Um, and this is really, really fundamental. And it explains, for example, why in the middle of watching, for example, a TikTok video, even before that TikTok video has ended, we're already wanting another TikTok video because in order to restore homeostasis from that big hit of dopamine, our gremlins have already tilted us to the side of pain, right? So we're wanting now another TikTok video to get out of that, that sort of pain, uh, pain leaning state. And by the way, in that state, what's happening is that we've downregulated dopamine transmission and dopamine receptors. So we're essentially in a dopamine deficit state where we've brought dopamine firing, not just back down to baseline, but below baseline. And when we're in that dopamine deficit state, the physiologic urge to restore balance at whatever cost possible is really, really strong. We will do whatever it takes, which brings us to the second rule of the balance, which really helps explain what's happening in the brain as we become addicted. Namely, with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcing substance or behavior, that initial deviation to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response to pain gets stronger and longer. And eventually, we end up resetting our hedonic or our joy set point so that now we're permanently tilted to the side of pain. In other words, now we've accumulated enough neuroadaptation gremlins to fill this whole room. They've got their tents and barbecues in tow. They're not going anywhere, right? So, And once we get into that state, we are in addicted brain. Now we need lots of our drug in very potent forms, not to get high, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And importantly, when we're not using, we're walking around in this dopamine deficit state, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, craving. And furthermore, we lose the ability to take, to take joy in other more modest rewards because we're just solely focused on getting our drug so that we can restore a level balance. It was so important, that aspect, and many of our audience would have seen the really heart-wrenching show, Dope Sick, about the opioid epidemic. And you talk about this opioid, I'll get my terms right here, opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Algesis is this Greek word which means sensitivity to pain. And we saw that illustrated in, in a really harrowing way where people will do anything to get the drug to get out of the pain. Right. Right. I mean, it's amazing how very good people will lose their moral compass when they're in the throes of their addiction. It's not because they're bad people. It's because their reward centers have been hijacked and confused by this drug, which is now telling them you have to sacrifice all to get, you know, to get the next hit or you're going to die. And it's really experienced in that very primitive um, physiologic way. And in a way I thought about it, it's like you're you burn out the receiver so it's like you're you're throwing the yeah. baseball all the time and the pitcher's like my arm's wrecked i can't do this yeah, anymore or it's right. worn down yeah and i thought about how say for example a child so wants to play the computer game and if that's driven the wanting to play by dopamine 
and then you get get home and the computer's dead or right. somebody broke in and stole the computer <laughs> or you just say no you're not going on it you were on it earlier on that's why they go crazy it's the right. it's the same thing right oh absolutely so what you know what happens i mean video games and other digital content are highly reinforcing they release dopamine in our reward pathway and as soon as they you know we're engaged not even when we're done but you know toward the latter half of it um you know our brain is already compensating by decreasing dopamine transmission so that when the child gets off the game or maybe even while they're still on the game but certainly once they get off the game those gremlins are now slamming that pleasure pain balance down to the side of pain and they're instantly in withdrawal angry restless um you know um depressed um in you know craving their drug not able to do anything else and you can see this in children like they will have these meltdowns after they've you know had screen time and it's because they are literally in physiologic withdrawal the thing is if you wait long enough you know and you you withhold the drug including the screen eventually those neuroadaptation gremlins will hop off the pain side of the balance and homeostasis will be restored and i've worked with a lot of families you know, that are struggling with their child's video game addiction when we take all screens away for a month and because usually that's amount the amount of time it takes to reset reward pathways um you know you can head in that direction with less time but to really fully reset reward pathways it, in my experience it takes a month and at a month those kids are like transformed people parents will say i feel like i got my kid back you know instead of this kind of antisocial angry child who's not participating in family life and doesn't want to here's a kid who who has recaptured themselves and is you know eager to be present and be helpful and 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 do things like that so it's really it's really insidious and it's it's really um you know impactful kinds of negative consequences of the time that we spend on these screens and it's not just children obviously it's it's all of us um and we don't really see it until we give it up and see the changes i thought as well about how so you think about all the drugs that are available now and the ease of access so technology makes it easy to get it like even you know i know in the states you have like an, an uber where you can get your you can get your marijuana or your cannabis <laughs> delivered like right. an Uber driver. It's like, and you pick your choice. As you say, right. it's all heavier while you're playing a game, maybe swigging on a beer. Right. And I say all that to say, firstly, is the access, but then how one of your patients you mentioned was like, well, I need to smoke weed in order to get over the anxiety that I have. And you said to her, no, you may be have the anxiety because of those gremlins because you're smoking weed and the only way right. we'll truly know is by giving up for a month of course you experience huge pushback but i think this is really important for people to realize that it is the only way to as you say reset the balance right so i have a lot of patients who come in wanting help with anxiety depression insomnia many of them using drugs like cannabis and um what i'll do is i'll explain to them the pleasure pain balance how the brain works how initially when they were using their drug of choice, it probably did help, but how over time those gremlins accumulate and now they've changed their hedonic or joy threat threshold such that what they're really doing is medicating withdrawal from their last dose. They're not really treating the initial symptom, but the only way for us to really find out is for them to abstain from that drug for long enough 
for the brain to readapt, reset baseline reward thresholds, and then for us to reevaluate. And what I find is about 80% of individuals who are able to stop using for a month, come back with near resolution of their presenting symptom without my having done any other intervention, which is, you know, part of why I wrote the book. It's just such a powerful thing to realize, oh my goodness, we are depressed and anxious and unable to sleep because we're individually and collectively in this dopamine deficit state, because our brain is desperately trying to compensate for the fire hose of dopamine that's being administered through our constant consumption of all of these reinforcing drugs and behaviors. So, I mean, I just, I'm really a huge advocate when I teach medical students, right? Teach residents, you know, because especially in psychiatry, we're educated to just give people a pill and sometimes that's the right thing, but looking at these behaviors and these consumptive practices, including around drugs that are not a substance that we ingest, but there are things that we are doing online and getting people to see the insidious way that they're, they're becoming unhappy uh, because of that digital consumption, I think is just really, really important. And if you're sitting there all judgmental, kind of going, oh, yeah, those people addicted to things, to, to substances, you can also be addicted to work. We'll come back to that in a moment, yeah. uh, Anna, as well. And as you show, people that are higher end of the spectrum who are earning even more are more addicted because the rewards are higher as well. We'll come back to that in right. a moment, though, because I wanted to stay on the problem for a moment before we get on to solutions. And in particular, I'd ask our audience, think back to episode one, if you joined us for that about radical honesty, and then think about how what is triggering your desire? Is it a person? Is it a place? Is it a thing? And this is really important, because Anna talks about this later on when she talks about the help that it comes from 12 step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, or just understanding this sometimes it's in an environment that's triggering things for me as i said to anna this is why these pins it's a priming method to actually nice. get me into the zone mm -hmm. and you know i took her from sport same type of primary method but that can work against you as well and I, this mm. is a really important aspect yeah so this is the i talked about the first two rules of the balance but i didn't get to the third rule which is really important and the third rule is that once those at neuroadaptation gremlins have been created they never entirely go away. So even if they hop off the balance and your homeostasis is restored, those gremlins are waiting in the wings to hop on the balance again. And now that they've already been created, they will very quickly do so, which is why, for example, even after long periods of abstinence, somebody with an alcohol addiction could use alcohol and immediately be plummeted uh, back into the depths of their worst addictive behaviors. It's because they're not working up to the gremlins. They already have the gremlins who then jump on the pain side of the balance to put them back in that dopamine deficit state, which is that state of craving uh, and addiction. But the other thing is that the gremlins will also um, react to a reminder of our drug. So it doesn't even have to be the drug itself. It can be a person, place, or thing that reminds us of our drug. For example, driving by the bar where we used to drink or, um, you know, I'm um, seeing an ad with a, you know, a beautiful woman, uh, which triggers us to want to then use pornography, right? And ads with beautiful women are, are everywhere. So very hard not to be triggered in this day and age. Really fascinating work in rodents showing that if you train a mouse to know that when it sees a light, 
it can go to a lever, press the lever and get cocaine. And, and if you put a probe in that rat's brain or mouse's brain, rodent's brain to measure dopamine levels, what you find is not only is there an increase in dopamine when cocaine has been delivered, which is what you would expect, but there's actually a little mini increase in dopamine when the rodent sees the light. So just being reminded of our drug or knowing that our drug is coming actually makes us a little bit high. But here's a really key piece of this. What the researchers found is not only is there a slight increase in dopamine levels with the trigger or the reminder, but right after that slight increase in dopamine with the reminder, there's a mini dopamine deficit state. So dopamine levels go back down, but they go below baselines to create the craving. So in other words, let's say, um, you know, I got to do the romance novels. I see an ad for a romance novel. What'll happen to me is that I'll get a little spike in dopamine followed by dopamine levels going below baseline. And now I'm craving getting that novel. And it's very hard for me on Amazon to not press the buy button, right? Because now I'm in that state and I'm also having euphoric recall. What's so hard about this is that even our own memories of use can trigger a little dopamine spike followed by dopamine craving. So that's the third rule of the balance. The first one is that this kind of opponent process that the balance wants to stay level and achieves a level balance or homeostasis by first tilting an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. The second rule is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcer, our initial response to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response to pain gets stronger and longer, and we essentially change our hedonic set point. And the third rule of the balance is that the balance remembers, and those gremlins once created never go away, such that we can actually get triggered to relapse just by thinking about our drug. I found that fascinating those studies on the mice where it's like they level up to level 10 and then they give up for years but they come back in at level 10 again so to get the same hit it's amazing it just shows you how adaptive the brain is as well which is the other side of it another drug of choice for many people unfortunately is gambling and you talk about this you said there's been some great research some really good breakthroughs on pathological gambling and in this section, you both reveal that research, but also the idea of loss chasing, which is also something that's quite prevalent for things like social media. Yeah. So the interesting studies of gamblers looking at their brains and their response, their dopamine response compared to non-gamblers, both engaging in the gambling uh, gambling activity. And what the researchers found is that with, with winning um, you know, non, non-gamblers had an, a spike or an increase in dopamine, makes sense, right? Um, and in gamblers, there was also an increase in dopamine with winning. But the difference was that when non-gamblers lost, they had no spike in dopamine. But when people who were addicted gamblers lost, they had a spike in dopamine even when they lost. And in fact, the biggest spike in dopamine for addicted gamblers was when the odds of winning and the odds of losing were equal, which is to say at the point of maximal uncertainty, that's when addicted gamblers get the most, you know, dopamine or reinforcement, which, uh, which speaks to this, this phenomenon of, of loss chasing. If you talk to addicted gamblers who are very far in their disease, what they're, they'll describe is that yes, on some surface level, the goal is to win, but really the goal is to be in that altered state of gambling. And once that becomes the place where you want to go, 
then really you want to lose because if you lose, then you can justify having to stay in that state longer. You can tell yourself, okay, well now I can't leave the game because I've got to win everything back. Whereas if you win, you know, the narrative should be, well, now it's time for me to to stop. But of course that, you know, an addicted gambler doesn't do that. I'm going to move on to solutions, Anna, because you do this so beautifully. And with this great acronym, that is dopamine itself. And I'll explain that in a second. I got a dopamine hit reading this little paragraph and also now an expectation of about to read it as well. So I'm going to chase that high again by sharing with our audience. And it's a beautiful segue to your acronym of dopamine. With prolonged and repeated exposure to pleasurable stimuli, our capacity to tolerate pain decreases and our threshold for experiencing pleasure increases. By imprinting instant and permanent memory, we are unable to forget the lessons of pleasure and pain even when we want to. Hippocampi tattoos last a lifetime. I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but the phylogenetically uber ancient neurological machinery for processing pleasure and pain has remained largely intact throughout evolution and across species. It is perfectly adapted for a world of scarcity. Without pleasure, we wouldn't eat, drink or reproduce. Without pain, we wouldn't protect ourselves from injury or death. By raising our neural set point with repeated pleasures, we become endless strivers, never satisfied with what we have, always looking for more. All those novels paid off, Anna. You write beautifully <laughs> about this. <laughs> and what follows here is lessons for recovery, for a reward weary world. Absolutely beautiful written. And you start here. I mentioned her earlier on a patient you call because everybody's anonymized Delilah, who was smoking too much pot. But in place, you put in this beautiful acronym dopamine, I'd love you to share with this with our audience for many of them who might be struggling, or certainly we all know somebody who is. Sure. So this this acronym dopamine captures the framework that we use in our clinic here in the early stages of treating somebody, you know, with a burgeoning addiction. D stands for data. This is where we ask people to just tell us what are they using, how much and how how often. And this, this serves two functions. One is to, that we get the information, but even more importantly, it crystallizes for the individual what their behavior is. Because until we put into words and tell another human being what we're doing, how much and how often, it can often stay in this amorphous state in the dark recesses of our minds. Um, for example, with my own you know, romance reading novel addiction, I really didn't become aware of it until I was talking with a student and we were in a role play around motivational interviewing and I was playing the patient and I sort of said, so what behavior do you want to change? And I was the patient. I said, I have this reading habit. I didn't elaborate the nature of the reading habit. But as I talked about it with him the next day, I just couldn't unsee it. Having said it to him, I was like, oh, and even though I was still reading my romance novels, I was now seeing myself reading them in a way that I hadn't before. And often in, in clinical work, patients will say, will say well, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll do something called the timeline follow-back method where um, instead of just saying, well, how many drinks, you know, did you have this week? I'll say, well, how many drinks did you have yesterday? And how about the day before? And how about the day before? And doing it that way, we're much more likely to get an accurate read. And then often people will be say like, oh, wow, it's 20 drinks. Like I, I hadn't really realized I was drinking 
you know, 20 drinks in a week. And then we can also use normalized population data and show them where they fit on the pie chart. Because oftentimes heavy drinkers or heavy users will socialize with other heavy users and then tell themselves that that's what everybody does. So then you say to them, wow, you're really, you're in the one percentile of, of people who drink. Like there are only, you know, the 1% of the population drinks as much as you drink. Plus for alcohol in particular, we have data that tells us what, you know, moderate drinking or what risky drinking looks like. And we know that anybody who's drinking, <clears throat> you know, more than about seven standard drinks per week or more than three on any given day is at increased risk for all cause morbidity and mortality. So that's, you know, that's useful data to be able to relate to people. The O of the dopamine acronym stands for objectives. And this is where we try to understand why people use. Um, generally people are using for one of two reasons to have fun or to solve a problem. And the problem can range anywhere from boredom, isolation to depression, anxiety, inattention, you name it. Um, now it doesn't mean in this stage of the intervention that we actually agree with the patient that using their drug solves this problem, but it's important for us to understand why, what, what is their motivation? Because even irrational behavior is, is girded in some type of fundamental, um, rational thinking. So that's very helpful, um, to know why they use. And then the P of the dopamine acronym stands for problems. And this is where we try to get them to reflect on what's not going right about my current consumption. Um, you know, is it interfering with my physical health, my mental health, uh, my relationships, my work? Sometimes with teenagers, the only thing that they'll identify is that their parents don't like it and they, they want them to stop. But that's an important, you know, a problem because, uh, you know, any, any teacher, teenager who's willing to come in as, as a teenager who's got a strong enough relationship with their parents that, that they want their parents to, you know, approve of their behavior. So then you can work in that space. Well, if this is a problem, maybe we can help you um, tackle this problem. The A of the dopamine acronym stands for abstinence. And this is really the sort of fundamental core of this early intervention where we'll ask patients to give up their drug of choice for a month in order to reset reward pathways so that we can see true cause and effect and potentially get them feeling a lot better without having to do anything else. And as I've talked about before, about 80% of our patients who are able to give up their drug of choice feel much, much better having done so. 20% don't. Uh, so that's also useful information. Like that tells us, oh, this person has another underlying problem that we have to target. The key piece in, you know, getting in preparing people for this dopamine fast or this abstinence trial is to warn them that they're going to feel worse before they feel better. So initially they're going to go into withdrawal. Universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. If it's a, a substance like alcohol or opioids or benzos, you're also going to have a profound physiologic withdrawal syndrome. But for cannabis, even if there's not a physical withdrawal, you'll have these psychological symptoms. I have patients with pornography addiction who will endorse not just the psychological symptoms of withdrawal, but also physical symptoms. They'll have actual physical pain after stopping pornography. And I've seen that with other types of behavioral or process addictions as well, social media, video games, gambling. So that, you know, the body is really reeling 
um, when we stop our drug because the body had adapted to it and now it has to readapt or unadapt uh, to that phenomenon. So warning people that they're going to feel worse in those first two weeks, but if they can just hang in there and get to week three and four, you know, the sun will come out and they'll feel a lot better. The M stands for mindfulness. We often use that word, but not maybe don't necessarily know what what it what it means. It's from you know uh, meditation traditions, Eastern meditation traditions, which has to, which has to do with observing our thoughts and our feelings without judgment and without trying to distract ourselves from those thoughts and feelings. Just observing it and letting it pass. And of course, this abstinence fast or uh, dopamine fast or abstinence trial is a great opportunity to practice mindfulness because when we can no longer reach for our phone, for example, to distract us from ourselves, we have to sit there and tolerate that moment. And that's very good for the brain because what it does is it essentially, uh, you know, allows those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side and for homeostasis to be restored and to get us comfortable sitting with homeostasis and not constantly needing to be, you know, stimulated in some way. The I of the dopamine acronym stands for insight. And this is just, I, I can't tell you how many times it, I've seen in my clinical work, people just have that aha moment where they say, oh my goodness, I thought this drug was helping me. And now I can see it was really causing the symptoms in the first place. So that's always really exciting. And then the N stands for next steps. And this is where after the dopamine fast, if, pa if patients have been able to do it, um, and they felt better. Then we asked them, well, you know, what do you want to do now? And the majority of people want to go back to using their drug of choice, but they want to use it differently. They want to use less. They want to have a, di a, a different, healthier kind of relationship. So this is where we talk a lot about self-binding. And self-binding is using literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we can press the pause button between desire and consumption. Self-binding can take the form of chronology or time, like telling myself, okay, I'm only going to use on certain days of the week or a certain number of hours a day or between these hours of the day. Or you can use time as a kind of a finish line. Okay, I'm only going to use after I finish X, Y, or Z or on my birthday or at this event. So you use kind of time as a construct to limit consumption. Um, another self-binding strategy is categorical. That's where you tell, tell yourself, okay, I'm going to drink beer, but I'm not going to drink hard liquor, or I'm going to play uh, this video game, but I'm never going to play League of Legends because once I start that, I can't stop. Or in my case, okay, I'm going to read philosophy and theology at night, but I'm never going to read uh, romance novels or at all or at night or whatever it is that's kind of my trips me up. Um, in addition to uh, chronological and categorical, uh, we also have just literal physical barriers where we literally get the drug out of the house. Don't keep alcohol in the house. Don't keep cannabis in the house. Or with our digital devices where we literally lock it up when we're not using it or power it all the way down or delete the apps or turn off notifications, um, you know, ways to actually, again, just create these just little bit of barriers, which help us take, slow it down and take that extra moment to ask ourselves, wait a minute, do I really want to be using this drug or, or am I just kind of reflexively responding to something in my brain? And then armed with a kind of very specific plan about either how to abstain or how to use in moderation, 
uh, patients go back out and they experiment. And that's the E of the dopamine acronym experimentation. Cause you know, life is one big experiment. So they'll go out and they'll try this and try that. And they come back and they say, well, this worked and that didn't, I slipped up here, but I did okay there. And then you kind of continue to modify it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that with our audience. I'm going to share that out as a separate piece as well for people. So you know the way some people don't have the attention span to listen through a few episodes. So that is definitely going out there. So thank you. I thought I'd draw on a few little parts that really stood out and maybe some complaints that I've heard from people or terms that I've heard. One of them was regarding abstinence. So this is you need to give up for 30 days. You mentioned then, because we've heard this meme that oh, the only way to give up a habit is take up a different habit. But sometimes your patients will kind of go, oh, can I use something else? And as you say, that rarely works. Yeah. So this idea that you can replace one reward with another reward is a kind of a slippery slope. Because first of all, if you replace your very potent reward with a less potent reward, you're not going to get a reward from it because now you've already reset your um, you know, pleasure pain threshold such that you need a more potent drug to feel anything at all. Um, but even more importantly, let's say you find another reward that's potent enough to compensate for the reward you're you're giving up, then you're very much at risk for cross addiction, which is to say now you're you're potentially going to get addicted to this other reward. And we see cross addiction all the time. Uh, so for example, if you're trying to give up I don't know, um, trying to give up smoking and instead you're eating more, um, you know, people who quit smoking have a tendency to gain a lot of weight, um, in that process. And that, that's, that's, doesn't make them happy either. So, um, instead what I recommend is actually, um, doing something very counterintuitive. And instead of trying to replace your reward with something that's more rewarding or another reward, actually re replace your reward with something that's painful or hard to do. And this is the whole science of hormesis. And if, again, if you go back to this pleasure pain balance, those gremlins in, in and of themselves are not bad actors, right? They're just trying to do their job of neuroadaptation. And it's true that if we press on the pleasure side of the balance, they will come on the pain side of the balance. But if we intentionally and gently press on the pain side of the balance, for example, with exercise or ice cold water or many other types of behaviors, those gremlins will hop on the pleasure side of the balance <clears throat> and actually help us restore homeostasis faster and potentially even reset our hedonic set point to the side of pleasure. So that's why doing things that are hard is a really good way to deal with this month of abstinence or even just to deal with life, right? Because what's happening is you're getting your dopamine indirectly by paying for it up front. I often think stress is over blown in the way that you need stress to get out of the bed in the morning, you need stress to be able to meet a deadline, you need stress to be able to get something done. Optimal stress, yeah. And actually, in a world, as you say, that it has many, many challenges removed, we're introducing challenges by having the challenges removed. So if you can lean into the stress and be in charge of it, and build that muscle, you actually have greater reward, rewards in life as well. And, and I thought that was actually fascinating that, well, I can build and I'm not going here self flagellating, but, you know, have, have a cold shower after the gym, exercise itself is hormetic in, in the same way, restricted uh, calorie consumption, because we're made to live in scarcity. Those things are really important. And I'd love you to share the science of this as you do in the book. Yeah. So um, I think this is really important too for helping us understand how to live better in the modern world, which is a challenging world in all kinds of 
unexpected ways. You know, you would think this world of incredible overabundance would be easy, but in fact, the abundance itself is the source of our, our misery in many instances. So what we have to do is build a world within a world where we insulate ourselves from too much pleasure. And we have to really embrace a new form of asceticism where we intentionally seek out things that are hard and painful. And what the science shows, for example, is that with exercise, essentially exercise is uh, immediately toxic to cells. But what happens is um, after some period of exercise, our body starts to increase or upregulate dopamine production along with other feel-good neurotransmitters and hormones like our endogenous opioids, our endogenous cannabinoids, serotonin, norepinephrine. And the dopamine levels and other feel-good neurotransmitters increase slowly over the course of the exercise, but the key is that they remain elevated for hours afterwards before going back down to baseline levels. So that's really exciting because we never have to pay for you know, our dopamine with that dopamine deficit state. Instead, we pay for it up front with our suffering uh, and then get hours of sustained uh, feel good. And that's, of course, the runner's high. Same thing with ice cold water. Dopamine levels slowly increase over the latter half of the ice cold water bath and then remain elevated for hours afterwards before going back down to baseline. People often ask, well, what are other things that I can do? There are so many other things, any kind of mind-body work, um, Tai Chi, yoga, martial arts, or really any kind of sustained effortful um, cognitive or emotional practice, prayer, meditation, um, deep concentration. These are all things that with effort uh, will, will generate an increased dopamine. And I just think it's a really uh, much better way to get your dopamine. It's less vulnerable to the problem of tolerance, dependence, and withdrawal, and the escalating uh, you know, need for more potent forms. Having said that, it is possible to get addicted to pain. For example, we do see patients who are addicted to exercise. Um, broadly speaking, addiction, again, is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. And we see people who exercise to the point of injury, of uh, rupturing their relationship, compromising their work function. So, um, you know, that's not good either. And we can develop tolerance to exercise where we need more potent forms. Part of what's made, you know, it possible to become more addicted or addicted at all to painful activities is the ways in which our world has drugified even healthy and adaptive behaviors. Um, and for me, one of the best examples of this is actually a fascinating, the fascinating history of running wheels in rodents. So running wheels were first used in uh, experiments with mice and rats as a kind of measure of healthy physical activity, or even just as an alternative to pressing a lever for cocaine, for example. But over time, it became apparent that some rodents uh, would engage on the running wheel, go on the running wheel, even without, um, you know, any kind of incentive to do so, even in the presence of other activities. And some rats would run so much on the running wheel that they would actually run themselves to death. If you gave them a smaller running wheel, uh, they would run so much that their little tails would get permanently curved up in the shape of the wheel. So clearly, you know, there are just like with people, uh, there, there's this tendency in some organisms to get addicted to pain or exercise. But what really made that possible with the rodents was the running wheel itself, which is a form of technology. 
right? It's an, it's a human invention that allows the rat to experience motion in a three-dimensional way that's not possible in nature, right? In nature, you can't go left and right and up and down. Uh, you know, gravity, you, you pulls you down. That's it. You go down. Uh, but, but in the running wheel really is like, is like an invention, uh, that then, you know, made, made running, uh, kind of addictive, even for these, uh, these rodents, the scientists went even one step further and actually put a running wheel in nature and said, okay, in, in God's great, you know, earth with all of the things that are on offer, like no one's going to go in the running wheel. And in fact, all kinds of organisms went in the running wheel, you know, rats, mice, voles, they even got some frogs going up in that running wheel. So there's something about the running wheel that's intrinsically reinforcing. And I think the same thing has happened with sport. Um, so we have all these machines, right? We have all these kind of extenders of normal human physiology, the way that we now have ice cold baths and, and warm baths and massagers and these kinds of this equipment and that equipment. Then you add to that social media and leaderboards and rankings. Now you're doing polypharmacy, right? Now you've not just the you know exercise or sport as the potential drug, but this social approval and the ways in which numbers and rankings are addictive in and of themselves. And, and now you've got a really potent drug. I love the final message. I think it's so important that we're medicating for many things. Oftentimes, we don't need that medication. Oftentimes, we're medicating for medication and the effects right. of different medication. Sometimes, as you pose, the question is, are we medicating ourselves to a point of not being ourselves? Right. And our audience would be sick of me quoting Blaise Pascal, who once said that all of man's problems stem from not being able to sit quietly in a room. And I really found <laughs> that's <laughs> I really, great. I really found that as a message from from your book is that, and this is why I started with radical honesty, and maybe not what you'd be used to people starting with as a as an interview style, because I think it's so important to know yourself, to know what's important to you, to know your values, to know what drives you, to know how to create positive habits, but don't get obsessed because there's yeah. a balance there. Yeah. I have a, a quote that I absolutely love from the end of the book. I'd love to share that. Yeah. Get a dopamine please. hit from it and then <laughs> hand it over to you to close with your final message. If if you only had a couple of minutes to be able to share with our audience to a wider audience why you did this why what drives you what's mm -hmm. behind all this for you as well i'd love you to do that so the quote before i even share that let's share where people can find you as well for keynotes for consult consultation etc um well there's a website on alemke.com dopamination.com um I'm not on social media, so that's a good spot to find <laughs> information about me. Brilliant. Okay. And here's my quote I absolutely love. You say, we're drawn to any of the pleasurable forms of escape that are now available to us. Trendy cocktails, the echo chamber of social media, binge watching reality TV shows, an evening of internet porn, potato chips and fast food, immersive video games, second rate vampire novels, addictive drugs and behaviors provide respite, but add to our problems in the long run. What if instead of seeking oblivion by escaping from the world, we turn toward it? What if instead of leaving the world behind, we immerse ourselves in it? 
I absolutely love that message. And that for me was what I really felt throughout the whole book with your radical honesty, with your storytelling, with all the payoff of the, that, those readings of all those novels you did as well, are all infused in there with your amount of study that you've done, your patience, all has come together to create this beautiful book. And it has been an absolute pleasure talking to, to you, Anna. What about you? What's your final message for our audience? Well, thank you for reading that quote. I think that quote really is the core and the culmination of the book. Um, and, and which is something that I have learned, you know, through many painful lessons in, in my own life, which is that we, we, we just need to show up for our own lives. And it is our tendency for many different reasons to want to escape ourselves and escape our lives. But if we stop running and we turn and we face whatever it is that we're running from, and we just let ourselves be who we really are, uh, look around us and see what work we have been given, how we can contribute in the moment, not looking over the fence to see what somebody else is doing, We're saying, okay, well, what, what can I do? And then really being present, you know, in, in the lives that we've been given. I think that that's, that can mitigate a lot of our, our unhappiness. Beautiful. And it talks to the very spirit of the show, author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, Dr. Anna Lemke. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Yeah, thank Dopamine you. I going crazy yeah. everywhere. <laughs> As always, this show is sponsored by Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. We'll see you very soon.